Annabelle Crabb. Three sales. I've got something that I'm hoping that I can read to you and I'm hoping that you haven't seen it. Okay, well. Have you by any chance seen this week the piece that the Washington Post run, ran, The 100 Greatest Descriptions of Donald Trump's Hair Ever Written? No, I have not. Oh, yes! <laughs> um, I've just been like, I'm holding a book for days thinking, I nearly didn't tweet it because I thought, I just I so don't want to see it, so I want to read it aloud. I wish I had seen it. I feel I'm about to live it. <laughs> Does this sound like your dream assignment if the Chief of Staff went, hey crap, I want you to find me every description ever written about Donald Trump's hair. What a modern media assignment that would be. <laughs> like, just like, it's going to involve some extensive Googling, crab. Are you up to it? <laughs> yes, I am woman enough. <laughs> so, it, basically, the Washington Post has assigned some reporter to go back through the archives. They found the first recorded um, oh, God. description of Trump's hair is from a 1984 newspaper profile of the then 38-year-old mogul, uh, and they described it then, first, first reference, his sandy hair is probably a bit long by the standards of the corporate world, with the sides slicked back just a bit. So we've now had three decades later of Trump's um, hair descriptions, 30, 30 years' worth of news articles they've gone through, and they've put the 100 best ones, so I've just made a note of the ones I thought you might particularly enjoy. A corn husk cursed by a witch. <laughs> that's good. The furrowed wake that a speedboat would leave on a lake of orange sherbet. Oh, that's nice. A Mobius comb-over. <laughs> I know, there is no that? evidence of where it begins and ends. That is a really, really good um, description. A hue best described as cigarette-stained teeth blonde. <laughs> <laughs> a pumpkin having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Decomposing pumpkin pie inhabited by vicious albino squirrels. <laughs> a dead skunk. A radioactive skunk. A dead squirrel. A mutant squirrel. A beaver's tail. A very well-behaved guinea pig. A badger sitting atop his head. An actual live woodchuck. A dish rag that on closer inspection is alive with maggots. Oh, that's a bit rough. Diffused, unsavoury salmon. <laughs> unsavoury <laughs> salmon. Also untinted salmon. Like, because you know, like, yeah. commercially, the way they feed them all of the yeah. horrible pellets. That's right. But a normal salmon is just a bit Trumpish in colour. That's so true. A face. Welcome for the diners. <clears throat> a face on the top of his head. A twin all but absorbed in the wound. Oh. The eyes move, the lips quiver. <laughs> A lot of thought must have gone into that one. A new wave of comb-overs which drops the lie of the shame and just asks, just asks onlookers to marvel at the scale, vision and depth of the comb-over you've just created. <laughs> Do you know anyway, one important public service that I reckon Donald Trump does perform is, you know how there's this sort of ordinary low hum of general bitching and moaning that women in politics get held to like, higher appearance standards or that people will go on and on about, you know, Theresa May's shoes or whatever. Yeah. Like, you never say that about a man. Well, yeah. He's getting you a lot would. of commentary. I mean, because that is just extraordinary. Yeah. Because there's so little normally that men in politics can do to distinguish themselves visually. Well, <laughs> this is really just... It's, it's so interesting you say distinguish themselves visually because he attracts a lot of commentary on his um, appearance because he is unusual visually, yeah. looks, doesn't look like a boxing yeah. guy. That's number 101. In Ev every, single woman, <laughs> every single woman is distinctive visually because yeah. there's no other women. And yeah. so that's why they're getting constant commentary. Yes, that, that is true. Yeah. I um, used tranquilized marmoset once, which I was like pleased with. Somebody tweeted me to say, how come your mates isn't on there? Oh, 
There you go. There you go. I was going to actually ask you. There was a. They said something. I can't remember. They said tranquilized marmoset, but they didn't use the word marmoset. So right. Okay. Well, there you go. That's fine. Yeah, that's that's fine. Now we are one of my favourite places to be, which is backstage. <laughs> yeah, we are backstage, um, and we have our um, own sort of. There is. We've been taken care of very nicely here backstage at the Rospacker Theatre. We've even been given our own little. It seems to be a costumery room because there's like little drawers of safety pins, and there's a whole like rolls and rolls of Velcro. There'd probably be some Hollywood tape here, love. Somewhere. If we, if we split a zipper. Do you in need the me right to, place? you know? <laughs> rectify you in any way. No, thank you. And there's vases and sort of fake flowers and, yeah, it's... Um, the whole vibe makes me want to say, I am a thespian. <laughs> a thespian. I think my voice has like dropped an octave just being back here. Thank Christ there isn't a baby ground in here. <laughs> I would just be in deep, deep trouble. But we are at the Sydney Writers' Festival and we're yeah. about to go and do our... Um, Little turn mm -hmm. talking about the books we've read this year. Okay, Anne Enright. I want to know about Anne Enright. I'm dying right. to know. Okay, I find it hard to talk about because I found the whole uh, interaction. I was really worried about it because I loved her book so violently. Yeah. That, and she's super clever. So, um, so Anne Enright. She won the uh, Man Booker in 2007 for her book The Gathering. She's an Irish writer. She's the current Irish laureate for fiction. Um, she's written a new book called The Green Road, which I think is one of the best novels I've read for I don't know how long, um, a long time. I was kind of worried about meeting her because she is so clever and observant. I just thought, well, you're just going to spot me for a fraud straight away. And she's very um, erudite, well-read, and has... You're just making me so nervous. I know, right? Stop making me nervous. Yeah, so what happened? So anyway, she's every bit as clever as I feared. <laughs> Anyway, it, the thing went well, but I was at no point relaxed because oh. she's also one of these people where, you know, I'm a real bumbling question answerer, I, I, I ask her rather. Um, I watch you in what you do. You've got seven minutes to interview somebody and you every word just gets spat, spit out because you don't have any time to waste. Have I, to however, down. Yeah. Right, well, when I um, interview somebody on Kitchen Cabinet, I've got six hours, so I'm a witterer. <laughs> So every now and again on stage, I'd be like wittering at that end, right? And she'd just say, uh, no. <laughs> or, you know, anyway. That, oh, that only happened once or twice, but I was just like, oh, God. Oh, God. But so she's, did it, did, overall, was it a positive experience? Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, hugely. I really enjoyed it. But and so it was what did you, also always an edge of terror. Did she talk about, I'm, I'm always interested in really good writers if they talk about their process. Right. She, okay, so there was this great... Um, my Writer's Day that she wrote once for The Guardian, which um, just filled me with reassurance because <laughs> she writes like a witterer. So the, the Writer's Day was like, oh, shit, answer the phone. God, one of my kids has locked themselves out, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right, I've got to sit down and read this, read two seconds of it and then just get lost on some social media site. Right, right turn, off the, turn off the internet, eat some chocolate. What am I doing? <laughs> End of the day with 200 words that aren't really anything. <laughs> but well, she says her, actually, her account of the writing process reminds me a little bit of Helen Garner's. And those two writers, I think, well, that's interesting. they remind me of each other, but not because they write similarly, but because they're, the inside, they the both have that sort of gimlet eye. And they are both, I think, um, systematic in the way that they uh, visit and revisit and they look 
so clearly at tiny, tiny details and are aware of how important the ordering of details and the, the um, eliciting of details from right. everyday life can be. I just, I, one of the reasons I struggled with preparing to interview Anne Enright is I just, I find her so impressive. I just, she, she writes and talks a little bit about the kind of cultural burden of being an Irish writer and being an Irish yeah. writer of a gender that hasn't really been paid a lot of attention until quite recently. But she has this quite, um, I don't know, almost like a majestic command of the canon that really feeds into her capacity to write very, very precisely. But she's also very funny. So there's just these, when I, when I was researching her, what I found I was doing was writing down paragraphs that she'd written or said in interviews, which is a really mm. poor technique when you're interviewing somebody because you just end up saying, well, like five years ago you said blah, blah, blah. Comment. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but because she has this knack for encapsulating things and then just sometimes just picking up on a tiny thing that tells you a universe of content without really going any further. So like just at total random in that book, The Green Road, there's this scene where Constance is going to get a breast screen. She thinks she might have, you know, a lump or something and nobody in her family knows that she's there because no one's remembered, you know. Um, and she's getting her gown on and the nurse, the line goes something like, any medications, the nurse said, Constance. Who was on a little? Who was on a little something that was none of anybody's business? <laughs> Constance was on a little something that was none of anyone's business. No, she said, and that's uh, it. Like that's the only reference to this, and it just says so, so much good. in such a tiny, that's, I, that's so awesome. economical and mm. barbered is this language, although it's quite generous in other ways. It's just ah, uh, she's yeah, spectacular, and. I went along on the opening night of the Sydney Writers' Festival, promise I will shut up about this woman shortly, um, and she gave one of three opening addresses. Um, there were three writers um, who had been asked to, uh, um, to address the topic of refuge, and she was the only writer who wrote a piece of fiction which oh. I think was not anticipated at all. Wow. But the piece of fiction that she wrote was just masterful and it was about a woman lost in an airport um, having arrived at this airport being having been shunted off her other flight and she arrived at this airport without really knowing which country she was in she knew that it was a german speaking sort of area but had no idea which airport she was in and it was all closed and locked up and she was tired and befuddled and she's pulling a little trolley bag through the airport and there's all these dead travelators that aren't working and then there's um, cops with machine guns and she's dreaming of checking into a hotel and having a hot shower and then as she goes further and further she starts to realise that the city is very closed down. She gets out to the front of the airport and there's just a queue of travellers who she can tell haven't washed for a while. You know, Her expectations of a hotel and a comfortable bed and a bath start to leach away and then she starts to identify gradually with these other travellers that are stateless. And then all of a sudden, almost imperceptibly, because she starts off, she's a businesswoman or something, right. you know, and imperceptibly over the course of this quite short piece of writing, you discover that she's a refugee. And the transition is so well-observed and also a bit... Um, 
you sort of realise when it's happened. Mm. It's, yeah, it was an amazing piece of writing. Wow. And, and um, brilliant to hear it read in her ridiculously lovely accent. I can imagine as well. as well if you were one of the other people. <laughs> was she first or last? Or she was in the middle. Oh, the poor person coming after. I suppose <laughs> they were all pretty amazing. Oh, they're all geniuses. Just be yeah. like, oh, they God. were all fine. Yeah. Um, oh, that sounds good. Is she one of those people who talks in a really well-formed way the same as she writes? I would describe her in person as exacting. You know, she's funny and very charming, but also so watchful. Right. So it's one of, she's one of those people where you kind of check your words and think, is what I'm about to say useful to anyone? Because <laughs> otherwise I might just shut up. <laughs> is she oh. what age is she? I would say she's sort of mid-50s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, oh, she's just a real, you know, I... I I'm now just in the process of going back and reading everything. Because you hadn't read anything before the Green Room. No, it was like... I've not read anything of this either. But, um, and I find that, you know, it's so weird. I feel like I spend a lot of my time reading and I... I don't know. Look, it's not like I'm re I've got the Times Literary Supplement slapping down on my doorstep <laughs> regularly or anything like that. But, I, you know, I, I read a lot, I think. And yet I'm constantly totally knocked over the back of the head by some incredibly famous writer that I haven't read. And I'm like, ah, I know, what? but it's just that it's sort of, I don't know, sometimes, like, of course, you know, I know her name and then it's, she's one of those people that's like, oh, yeah, I must read that one. Oh, yeah, I must read that one. Yeah. And then it just sort of passes yeah. you by yeah. and um, you just end up having um, not read them. There's a Japanese author like that too. I forget his name. Um, uh, Murakami. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't got a single thing. Well, maybe. Well, that's why writer festivals are good, right? Because you, they're there, and you're like, oh, better just read that, and then you think, ah. <laughs> now, speaking of meeting people yeah. of whom you're a fan, mm -hmm. I was really taken this week by a Facebook post that somebody put on, um, which went viral about meeting Roger Moore, who died this week. <laughs> oh, James yeah. Bond. It's just. Can I just read it? Because it's yeah. such a good anecdote. Go on, do it. It's a guy named Mark Haynes. As a seven-year-old in about 19. 83, is that I can't see, 83, in the days before first-class lounges at airports, I was with my granddad in Nice Airport and saw Roger Moore sitting at the departure gate reading a paper. I told my granddad I'd just seen James Bond and asked if we could go over so I could get his autograph. My granddad had no idea who James Bond or Roger Moore were, so we walked over and he popped me in front of Roger Moore with the words, my grandson says you're famous, can you sign this? As charming as you'd expect, Roger asks my name and duly signs the back of my plane ticket, a fulsome note of best wishes. I'm ecstatic, but as we head back to our seats, I glance down at the signature. It's hard to decipher, but it definitely doesn't say James Bond. My granddad looks at it, he figures, half figures out it says Roger Moore. I have absolutely no idea who that is and my heart sinks. I tell my granddad he's signed it wrong, that he's put someone else's name. So my granddad heads back to Roger Moore, <laughs> holding the ticket, which he's only just signed. I remember staying by our seats and my granddad saying, he says you've signed the wrong name, he says your name is James Bond. <laughs> Watch your boss face, crinkled up with realisation, and he beckoned me over. When I was by his knee, he leant over, looked from side to side, raised an eyebrow, and in a hushed voice said to me, I have to sign my name as Roger Moore, because otherwise, Biofeld might find out I was here. <laughs> He asked me not to tell anyone that I'd just seen James Bond, and he thanked me for keeping his secret. I went back to our seats, my nerves absolutely jangling with delight. My granddad asked me if he'd signed James Bond. No, I said, I'd got it wrong. I was working with James Bond now. Many, many years later, I was working as a scriptwriter on a recording that involved UNICEF, and Roger Moore was doing a piece to camera as an ambassador. 
He was completely lovely and while the cameraman was setting up, I told him in passing the story of when I met him in Nice Airport. He was happy to hear it and he had a chuckle and said, well, I don't remember, but I'm glad you got to meet James Bond. So that was lovely. And then he did something so brilliant. After the filming, he walked past me in the corridor, heading out to his car, but as he got level, he paused, looked both ways, raised an eyebrow and in a hushed voice said, of course, I remember our meeting in Nice, but I didn't say anything in there because those cameramen, any one of them could be working for Bielefeld. <laughs> Delighted oh, so at 30 good. as I had been at 7. What a man. What a tremendous man. <laughs> How good is that? Okay. If I ever hear a bad story about Roger Moore again, oh. I'm never going to believe it because that is now the defining story. What a just delightful person to do that. So, so good. <laughs> um, so, just a bit of a clone. Yeah. I'm interviewing Senator John McCain on Monday. Are you? Just yes, which I'm very okay. excited about actually because... When I was Washington correspondent, and it was, I got there just a month after 9 11, right. and it was the lead up to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it was torture, and it was all those memos leaking about yeah. what they were secretly doing and stuff. And there were a few big, you know, lions of the Senate who were Republicans yeah. who were really trying to hold the place to account. John McCain was one of them, mm -hmm. Lindsey Graham, South Carolina was another one, um, Richard Lugar, um, Chuck Hagel, these really powerful you know senatorial dudes mm. and often they were sort of military ones because yeah. the military guys were really concerned about the abuse of the military code of sure, justice yeah. and stuff um anyway so i sort of quite liked john mccain then and then he you know ran for president in 2008 anyway when uh, i was in washington i read his memoir which is called it was written in 1999 it's called faith of my fathers and it's one of the best memoirs i've ever oh, read right, okay i've never Absolutely. even thought about reading that just Phenomenal because it's basically so both of his fathers were four star admirals. Um, and what do you mean, both of his fathers? Oh, sorry, but <laughs> this is going to be some reveal. <laughs> his grandfather, sorry, right. his grandfather and his father, right. both four star admirals. Um, his father was so McCain, as is well known, yeah. was a taken prisoner of war in Vietnam. And so, the big chunk of the book is about um, that experience yeah. being in the Hanoi Hilton for five years, much of it in solitary confinement. Um, his father at the time, Jack McCain, was the head of PATCOM, which is, you know, so he was in charge of all US forces in the Vietnam theatre, the father, while the son was a prisoner of war. Far out. So McCain was offered, the Viet Cong offered McCain release because he was the son of, yeah. you know, the top person, and he refused <laughs> to take it because there's a rule that if there's release, it's the order in which you are yeah. in prison. Um, and uh, the father, meanwhile, is ordering, you know, bombing strikes on the region and the places where his own son could be being held and not knowing what sort of retaliation or anything could be going on. Anyway, the father um, basically could never... You know, there was a huge... In the family, there's a big sense of duty and stuff. The yeah. father, when they discovered Jack McCain and the wife, that um, John McCain had been shot down and mm. taken prisoner, um, they were about to go into some big diplomatic dinner in London. They still went, carried on, went in, did it. Um, and the father, basically, any time the son's name would be raised, would say, I can't talk about the boy. And he would just not do it, except for one occasion when he was touring some territory they held in Vietnam. Mm. And he asked to be, for a moment, alone, and he spent 15 minutes just looking over the border into the other territory. Anyway, incredible story. And then McCain, McCain's account of the father as well as a complicated figure, because... He was an alcoholic, but not in the way of someone who drinks all the time, in the way of someone who desperately tried to keep a lid on it, but occasionally would just go on the most catastrophic benders, like five or six day absolute disastrous bender. Um, and anyway, so then the, 
other part of the book is about McCain's sense of duty and obligation and commitment to American values and how much he came to realise how much he loved America and, and what America stood for as a prisoner of war. I mean, the whole thing, it just makes... I mean, it was so unbelievably offensive anyway when Donald Trump said in the yeah. recent election campaign... You know, I like guys who don't get captured. Yeah. yeah. I don't like losers. I like the guys who don't get captured. Like, oh, just unbelievable. This is a guy who dodged out of service for oh. me. Oh. Somebody did... It might have been the Washington Post. Somebody did an excellent... Um, thing timeline side by side of what was John McCain doing while sorry yeah what was Donald Trump doing while yeah. John McCain was a prisoner of war um and I mean it's just brutal but I mean that's he's just always been such a complicated figure for the Republicans hasn't he McCain, McCain. Yeah. um mm. yeah he's he's one of those guys probably a bit like Malcolm Turnbull in that yeah he's a conservative like yeah. don't mistake him for a progressive he's a conservative but he's reasonably um you know, socially progressive. And he's also, you know, he's always been known as a maverick, you know. Yeah. I think, the, what was the bus called? The Straight, straight, straight Talk, Talk Express. Express or something. <laughs> um, yeah. I once saw drive into an actual stadium and then, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. It was very odd. It's it was always, like a dream, but it was actually real. It's always telling, I think, with people too when they've had the same staff for a long time. And he, yeah, McCain's right. had some of the same people yeah. for a really, really um, long time. Anyway, he's. I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting him because I think the guy's a genuine goddamn American hero. Yeah, he's coming to Australia. All right. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to it, actually. But um, anyway, just one of those ones because I'm a great admirer. I just yeah. think, oh, I hope he's not going to turn out to be an ass. <laughs> anyway, um, what else have you been doing? Anything um, to report? What else have I been doing? I've watched a bit more of Veep. Oh, yeah. The, okay, I the new series. Yeah. It's good. It's yeah. like, you know how when we first, when we watched that first app and we were both a bit, yeah, just a bit like, oh, where's this going? Yeah, they've got to pull the threads back together. Yeah, so they do that it's, well. Yeah, it's it's fine. Does Hugh Laurie come back? Uh, not at this stage, oh. but um, in episode three, there is a cameo by this. There's a great cameo. There's oh, a really, cool. really good cameo. Yeah, excellent. Okay, um, that. So that's just uh, a little treat uh, in store. We've got to start watching the Americans. Um, yes. I've also started watching the new series of Master of None, you know, that Aziz Ansari Oh, yeah, series. you got me onto that. Yeah, I enjoyed that, yeah. It's great, actually. The first episode is really experimental because um, the, the first series ended when he sort of broke up with his girlfriend oh, that's and right, said, yeah. right, I'm going to Italy to learn to make pasta. Right. And so, oh, yeah, right, okay. And so the first, um, <laughs> the first episode of the new series is in Italy. He's in Modena. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great. That reminds me of, um, you know, because there's not, not room for two uh, subcontinental actors in Hollywood. <laughs> no, Aziz Ansari. And there's a guy called uh, Kamal Nanjiani who, um, you, if you're a fan of the show Silicon Valley or uh, Community, and, in fact, I think he has been in um, Master of None as well, um, he is in a lot of different things and he's really funny and great also a stand-up comedian. The New Yorker's done a really long profile of him because he's just done a film with his wife that was sold for the most amount of money ever oh. at Sundance after oh, right. Sundance screening. Right. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting because he's talking about how, in his view, what's missing in sort of film and TV, and this is a bit of what Aziz Ansari's doing as well, is Muslim characters, um, dark-skinned Muslim characters who are secular. Mm. So they're just dudes who want to go and get some ice cream. Yeah. Like they're not because he said that it's constantly terrorists and yeah. cab drivers and right. you know, blah blah blah. People praying, whatever. He said, "What about just the normal dudes?" And I love him in Silicon Valley, which is 
hilarious, highly recommended. Um, there's a great, it's about guys doing a startup. So he's playing one of the sort of Pakistani computer programmer types that they've got. Um, people always think, you know, are you an illegal immigrant? Are you a terrorist? Blah, blah, blah. But the guy who's the illegal immigrant is actually the white Canadian dude who sits next to him and he's overstayed his right, okay, yeah. <laughs> So that sort of subverted that. <laughs> and in, in a lot of um, uh, his stand-up comedy, there's some funny sort of playing on how people, I think in the film actually as well, um, the assumptions people make, so and particularly yeah. that people made after 9-11. So there's a scene where he's going out with an American girl and her father says, what's your stance on 9-11? And uh, his character says, um, look, it was an absolute tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. <laughs> oh, no, that's a shocker. <laughs> but just wow. sort of pointing out the idiocy of, yeah. you know, someone actually asking you stuff like that. It was a great, you know, as all New Yorker profiles are, it was great. God, that's, there's a, a woman, one of the other speakers at the opening night of, um, uh, of, um, Sydney Writers Festival was Britt Bennett, who's written this book called The Mothers, which mm -hmm. is like so hot right now, etc. Of course, I that was the first I heard of it because I'm an idiot, apparently. But um, uh, she and her um, speech, I have to say, was really good as well. Like she took a non-fiction approach, um, and she had this really interesting. I'm coming back to relevance to what we've just been talking about. I promise. You just just spat out of your nose. <laughs> Oh, why don't I start with the relevant bit about her first? I'm reminded of her because yes. she was the one who wrote that piece for Jezebel in 2014 called um, I, don't want, I Don't Know What to Do with the Good White Person. And it was sort of um, in the beginning of Black Lives Matter type. Um, she was just writing about all of her encounters with what she calls the good white person who's like trying to help and then wanting to have some credit for being helpful right. and like, well, I'm not racist, so <laughs> I should have a bit of a biscuit for that. Some of my best friends are, wasn't yeah. yeah, she's now written this novel and um, uh, apparently it's brilliant. Mm. But also at this um, at this opening night, she was making a speech on the topic of refuge. She was talking about how um, she thinks that nostalgia is the most pronounced refuge that people seek at the moment. Oh, so yeah. that's what's going on in the United States at the moment. That's people are taking true. refuge in nostalgia. But she made the point, like she's 25 or something absurd, um, and she said, you only um, you hear a lot of reference to the term safe spaces and normally it's a kind of a dismissive reference to Generation Y being too um, easily taking offence and, you know, university campuses being all touchy-feely and whatever. But she said that she thinks there's no greater and more comprehensive safe space than the nostalgic world of, you know, let's make Australia gr America great again. And um, she unpacks that particular expression and says, well, look, like, when was this America last great? Like, a lot of these people are kind of looking back to a time where, you know, things weren't that great for her and her mother and her grandmother. And she said, look, you know, I don't... As a black woman, things have never been greater for mm. me than right now because there wasn't anything that great about 50 years oh, ago. Interesting. Or, yeah. um, in, that is so interesting in the context of something I was thinking about this week about taking refuge in nostalgia because yeah. Caroline Kennedy has released this video marking 100... Uh, John F. Kennedy would yeah. have been 100 years old. You can't look at it and think she's not laying the groundwork for a presidential run. Right, OK. The Democratic nomination in 2020. Because... Um, Oh my God, just all the nostalgia buttons, bam, 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 yeah. being pushed constantly. And I was thinking about it, thinking 
it's really interesting because if people this whole make america great again message yeah. for a certain cohort of people you know white americans they would look back to the kennedy era, yeah. era as a time when america was great um so I just thought, man, that is so interesting. I think she's currently ambassador to Tokyo or something wow. like that. So, God. But I mean, but then the counter side of that is, because I think one of the problems with running Clinton as a candidate was that if Americans are sick of business as usual, nothing mm. says business as usual like the Clintons. Yeah. Um, I mean, a Kennedy, like that's just the ultimate business as usual as well. Do you think? Isn't it a bit removed? I mean, like, it doesn't it? I mean, the Kennedy... The Kennedy sort of Camelot myth now is so comprehensive. Yeah. I mean, it's only really viewed up close that it was so bumpy and imperfect and but it's just and the, like rotten in some ways, you know. But I but, guess it's just that entrenched Washington insider, like, oh, we've got the Bushes, you've got the Kennedys, yes, you've got the wealthy Waspy, you know, well, they're not Waspy, but you know what I mean? Um, that sort of moneyed East Coast insider power. Yeah. But anyway, I, I nonetheless thought that it was very interesting. Now, we've been going for about half an hour, and you know how I love to end it at the half well, hour. I know how you love to end it at the half hour. <laughs> Plus, we've got to get upstairs and do our writer's session. There was festival. one other thing that I was going to mention to you, and I can't remember what it... Oh, right. Just quickly, just on the train here, read Helen Garner's new essay in the... As far as I know, the ink is still wet on it. Um, new um, edition of the monthly. Okay, so she's... This woman, I just... Wow. Ghana. At some point, she's going to pick an easy subject to write about, like flowers or something. So she's gone in, like, after years and years of immersing herself in the Robert Farquharson trial, um, you know, the, the guy who drove into the dam mm. with his three sons. Which was the subject of This House of Grief. That's right. Um, and she's now written this lengthy piece about um, Akon Gwo... Gouda, I'm not sure how her surname is pronounced, um, I've only ever read it, um, the Sudanese-born Australian woman who um, drove into a lake with her kids in the car. Now, it is just the most scarifyingly tragic story, like this woman's life, how she came to be in Australia, like she was married in Sudan, um, it was a love marriage, she had a couple of kids and then her husband was killed in action and she had to basically walk across the whole country to get out with her um, by then three children mm. got sort of sponsored to come to Australia had another three children she just kept having kids with and that once you are married in that culture you can't marry again if your husband's died so she's basically yeah. handed from brother-in-law to brother-in-law oh my god it's just it's the most grim story and then she does this um, like just unimaginable thing, you know. And she didn't die, though, did she? No, she, she didn't. Yeah. She she drove into the lake and she got out of the car and she stood next to the car while her children drowned. Um, and there were people who saw it happen and she seemed to go into this weird, like she, she denied she'd ever been there. You know, it was just this strange... Anyway, only Helen Garner <coughs> could, you know, walk... Yep. I mean, only Helen Garner could actually walk towards this story and not away from I mean, only Helen Garner could actually, weakened as she is by this bloody interaction with this already horrible Ugh. story that she's spent all these years writing this book about, which is a, a brilliant book, could then saddle up again and ride towards this story, which is worse 
than oh, the Farquharson one. Oh, it's just unremittingly big. Anyway, so the, the piece that she's written for the monthly is extraordinary and it pays such respect to this woman whilst abhorring what she's done. It just basically examines the circumstances of her life and she kind of reaches the conclusion that it's amazing that it didn't happen earlier. Like, oh, anyway, it, it's just... I can't even really describe it. It's so grim, but it's also this extraordinary piece of writing. Anyway, yeah. read it and then just, I don't know. <laughs> Take <laughs> just, to bed. I don't know, yeah. something like that. God. Um, all right, well, let's wander upstairs. Okay. Now that we're in this, yeah, we're in this exactly. spectacular frame of mind. <laughs> I know. Now I just want to hear you sing something. <laughs> That's how low I am. Guru's got to clear up. Put on a happy face. Sorry, I'm going to that back.